and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. Steve Ingham is one of Page Group's longest serving employees and has been Chief Executive of Page since 2006, overseeing the steady growth of a prosperous business. All was going well until March 2019, when he had an horrific skiing accident which nearly took his life and has left him paralysed from the waist down. My conversation with Steve explores this experience, how he balanced his recovery with leadership of a FTSE 250 business, and how he hopes to influence opportunity for disabled professionals and other minority groups in business. We also talked about COVID and how leaders can remain people-focused in a remote office. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Steve Ingham, CEO of Page Group, welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. Thank you. Let's begin with your organisation, Page Group. You've been there for over 30 years. I'm sure you've seen quite a journey uh, with the organisation during that time. What was it like when you joined over 30 years ago? You're right, it's nearly 35. Um, Well, recruitment wasn't a very big industry, particularly in the professional area you know, where we were recruiting professionally qualified people. So I think Page was at the time about 200 people worldwide. So uh, 200 people recruiting accountants for companies. And that's often what we're sort of regarded as a financial recruiter in the city or whatever. Um, We're now 7,000 people, 142 offices in 36 countries. So business has changed somewhat what I've been there. And what, what did you do when you first joined the organisation? I'm assuming you were a recruiter. I was a recruiter, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, of course, a very successful one. Um, no, I mean, we, we, I, I was part, so basically I was interviewed by Michael Page, uh, the man that set it up, and um, he wanted to start looking at diversifying away from just recruiting accountants for companies. So I came in to start off the business in marketing recruitment, um, so I was recruiting typically in, in those days, FMCG brand managers, market research, design, sales promotion, and so on, into different companies. Uh, a lot of them, the big blue chips you'd imagine that, that exist around London. And uh, we then replicated the same offices that we had in our finance business, recruiting accountants, so all the big cities in the UK. And then when we had that expertise, we, we rolled it out internationally, by which time we were already starting to open other countries. And then from there, I actually went from marketing to sales, to retail operations, to engineering, to supply chain, to logistics, to HR and so on, as we launched all the different disciplines. Because frankly, if you've built a relationship with a client um, and you've got a good track record, then while you've walked through the door and built that relationship, you may as well recruit the other professionals for them as well. But you need different specialists to do that. So we built up these specialist businesses with consultants who typically had the background from which they were recruiting. 30, nearly 35 years is a long time to spend in one organisation, particularly recruitment, where surely you're surrounded by temptation in the market. So what has kept you at Page Group for this time? Uh, look, I think the honest answer to it is that so much has changed all the time at Page. There's always been a really exciting opportunity around the corner that I wanted to get my teeth into. And um, if, if I hadn't, I would have done something about it. 
So there was always something. The business has transformed as well, um, upwards and downwards. So we do part qualified under a brand called Page Personnel, and we do more executive work under Page Executive. We do very large projects under Page Outsourcing. And then there's been all these different international challenges. How do you become market leader in China or Latin America when when the industry isn't even un- understood or, or, or known in those markets? So launching the business in what is a people business, launching the business into those markets, and then educating clients as to what we could offer them um, and opening doors there. You know, it was just always exciting. So there was never really a job elsewhere that tempted and, uh, and then we were often, you know, we sold the company. It was a public company. We sold the company to an American organization. Then we didn't like that. So we, uh, three years later, we, we managed to get the opportunity back to refloat here in the UK back in 2001. So I, I joined the PLC board back in 2001, some 19 years ago. And then, you know, then becoming CEO was on the horizon shortly after that. And, and you know, and I, then I became CEO, which was always the dream job. So, you know, it, it, there's always been something really, really exciting in front of me to keep me working and committed to this organization rather than looking wistfully at others. <laughs> okay. I'd like to talk about um, some of your recent experiences. Um, sure. and how, how that's influenced your, your leadership. Um, you had a life-changing accident um, yeah. last year. March, yeah. In March last year. Um, tell me what happened. Yeah, it was life-changing. It was nearly life-ending, actually. I think it's probably a better way of putting it. Um, yeah, I was on a skiing holiday, as many people do, and uh, unusually, I wasn't in a large group this time. I was just having a quiet week away in a resort I know like the back of my hand, which is clearly not that well. Um, And I was skiing on my own and um, I was going too fast on the first day. I thought I'd put an extra turn in and I caught an edge. And instead of replanting the ski, uh, I lost my direction at the point I should have been going over a very narrow bridge. Uh, And as a result, (laughs) I went into what the bridge was over, uh, which was basically a pretty jagged ravine um so i hit the far side of the ravine and sank to the bottom um and when i'd managed to sort of get the snow out of my eyes and my ears um i realized also quite quickly because it was very cold i was lying in a uh a stream quite a deep steam stream and so <laughs> you could imagine in switzerland this was pretty cold um i instantly knew i was paralyzed because the only part of me that wasn't cold was my legs uh, which couldn't feel it at all. Um, the stream was running through my jacket and gilet and all this sort of stuff, so uh, I was getting very cold very quickly. Um, I grew up in Cornwall, so I know what hypothermia can do and how quickly it grips you, so I realized I had to face that challenge, as well as the fact I couldn't move my legs. And they were still attached to ski boots and everything else, so I couldn't drag them either. And also, I, I was—I had rocks and everything to, to try to get up to um, to get out of there, which was going to be impossible. However, adventurous or determined I was, I was never going to climb out of there. I had a few other injuries, which at the time I didn't realise, but I was actually uh, drowning in my blood as well because I'd managed to s- smash my ribs front and back. So I had what they call a flail blood, which means it's not really attached to you; it's sort of. 
um, you know, it should be attached to your body, obviously, and um, bits of my ribs had gone into the lungs and uh, my lungs were filling up with blood. So um, I had a few challenges. My phone didn't work, which was uh, obviously lovely. And I started shouting, but it was an incredibly windy day. So um, I think people were just skiing by with their helmets on, probably music blasting and didn't hear me. So uh, yeah, I had to fight a, a desire to go to sleep, to be honest and just to get rid of the pain. Um, but I knew what that meant. And uh, it's the sort of sleep you go into, but don't come out of. So uh, I uh, started throwing things. I didn't have many things to throw, to be honest. And if ever you imagine lying in a stream on your back with a broken back and broken ribs, trying to throw things, it's not easy. I was rescued at that point. Uh, somehow, I mean, I was getting quite faint, but uh, in terms of my shouting. But a Frenchman rescued me and said, are you okay? But no, I persuaded him not to ski off and get help, but to make phone calls there and then to call the air ambulance. And a Scotsman uh, actually rescued me uh, from mountain rescue. He climbed down and started trying to warm me up and keep me talking. And, you know, it felt a bit surreal, to be honest. It felt like one of those films, you know, because he said, Steve, keep talking, stay with me, stay with me, you know, and you think this is like a film, isn't it? The ambulance arrived, to be honest, I fell into a coma just as the doctor got to me. Um, he probably stuck a needle in me, I suspect. Uh, I was not really paying much attention at that time. And um, I went into a coma for three days and woke up in hospital, a lot warmer. <laughs> so, so, so quite a vivid uh, memory of how it happened and staying conscious throughout that whole um, period of waiting to be found and rescued. If I hadn't stayed unconscious, I would have died. I mean, it's as simple as that because I would have died of the cold very quickly if I was unconscious. So I didn't have long to regain it. And actually, funnily enough, I thought that as I went in because I wasn't a great rugby player. Uh, before you ask, I was a pretty lousy one, but I did play till I was 40. And, and I've been knocked out a few times and, and I really hoped as I had the crash, I wasn't unconscious because I knew that could be really dangerous. And um, although actually I did take quite a blow to my head and it uh, turns out I'm, I'm almost deaf in one ear now. So uh, as a result, but, uh, and they actually told my daughter to arrive in Switzerland, that while I was on the life support machines and so forth, that uh, I had a brain injury. So they weren't even sure what sort of state I would wake up in, but. I was lucky. I wasn't knocked unconscious. I was lucid. It kept me alive. And, um, and that was absolutely key. And, and it's like any big issue you face, you have to think strategically about how to get out of it. And, uh, you know, conserving your energy, um, trying to, you know, shout at the right times, clearly what you need and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, cause I didn't have long and I was down there for maybe 30 minutes, but 30 minutes lie, lying in a stream was probably one or two degrees temperature. You're not going to last too long. And so three days later, you say you woke up in a hospital bed. So yeah. Talk me through the, the next next stages, I, I suppose, in, in your experience or the, the beginning sure. of your road to recovery. Well, if anyone's been in life, on life support machines, I'll know it's a pretty horrible place. And, you know, you are connected in more ways than you would think there's possible. Um, and on top of that, I was on obviously pretty extreme doses of morphine, which means that uh, in my case, you think the, uh, the, the man on man marking you've got from the nurses, they're definitely angels of death and they're trying to kill you. 
uh, you become totally paranoid about everything that's happening around you, and it's, it has a very strange effect on you. I don't, I didn't like it at all. But more importantly, my girls were there when I opened my eyes, and uh, my girls saying my daughters and my girlfriend, uh, my sister as well, used to wind me up, um, and uh, you know that was reassuring. I knew that I was paralyzed from the moment I opened my eyes, but I wanted confirmation that, you know, I'm not medically qualified, so maybe I'd got it wrong. So I wanted confirmation, and I had to trick my daughters into giving me the answers to those questions because they didn't want to hit me with that straight away. Um, but, you know, when you've been 35 years in recruitment, you know how to ask lots of questions and make sure you get clarity on the answers. So. Um, and then, of course, each time I got the answer, I'd fall unconscious again and then wake up and ask the same questions again. So uh, I had to keep going through Groundhog Day. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I knew I was paralyzed. That's fine. You, you've then got to get yourself off these machines and get yourself out of there so you can sort of be in a, in a more of a normal world, you know, off drugs and and so on. So it just becomes this longer journey than getting out of the stream, but this journey of trying to get promoted out of intensive care into the next stage of intensive care which is a sort of special care i think it was called and then you go from special care to you know to to your own room and your own bed and you know and the girls were able to stay with me all day and and so on um you know i had a couple of work issues that i had to need that i needed to resolve while i was in intensive care as well which was quite amusing when i think about it but um, because we clearly needed to make an announcement to the city and, 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 and say that you know, the CEO's not going to be able to run the company uh, 24-7 anyway for a moment, um, and that he's had a pretty uh, pretty big accident. Um, so that went out, which, of course, I realised would also my staff would be alerted to, so I realised that was going to send them a message, and, um, and it was announced uh, everywhere. And, and in effect, I stepped back from being the active CEO for a, for a while anyway, not too long, but for a while, um, well, I got myself out of intensive care. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the first thing you mentioned about waking up is that your girls were there, and that helped having them there. You've also talked about um, having targets and progressions uh, as being kind of helping propel you forward. What else was really important in your recovery to help you get back to um, being Steve? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, look, I think in, it's important in life, and I know this you know, sounds all very um, perfect, but it's true. We, you know, we should be role models, and I, and I don't, obviously, we should be role, role models as parents. That's a given. So I wanted to show them how I was going to recover from this. I don't think they had any doubts that I would, but I wanted to show them that, you know, we all have, we are going to have challenges in life. I mean, that, you know, it's a beautiful world when the age of, of 21 or whatever age, you know, one of them was at, you know, when nothing's really challenged you so far in life and it's all been fairly straightforward, you know, you've sailed through your academics or whatever, but you're going to have some probably nasty challenges at some point. And, you know, I wanted to be a role model for them as to, to show them how I would get through this one. And uh, I suppose that was key. And then clearly what was key was also to do that as a leader. Um, you, you know, a lot of people... I hope anyway, look up to me. Um, you know, I'm very visible in page. Everyone knows me. I think there's only one other person in the company that's been in the company longer than me. Um, so, you know, I've been around, I've been to every office, I've been to every country. I'm, I'm very much hands-on and, um, 
So, you know, the, the reality is I wanted to make sure I was a role model to people internally as well in the company, and, and, and I want to be a role model, and this is something that perhaps will take me longer and, and I want to focus on when I'm doing less at the page, which is how I start to be a role model maybe to other people who have physical challenges like I have. And, um, you know, maybe there's some work or a platform I can command to, to do that as well. I really hope so. And, um, you know, that's that's a big challenge. But, uh, you know, I am a CEO of a FTSE 200 company. I am in a wheelchair. My disability is very, very obvious to anyone who sees me. Um, so, you know, maybe I could use that to you know, inspire other people with similar injuries or just with disabilities per se. Or maybe I can inspire leaders to be a bit more engaged with that community and, and, and a bit more diverse in the way they hire and so on. So um, that's a pretty big challenge that I've just laid out there. Some of that I think I've done or I'm doing already with my kids and you know, with the with my employees, but uh, clearly the last one is is I'll, I'll never succeed, but I might be able to help. And right now, at the time of us speaking, it's eighteenth of August, twenty twenty. You are the only FTSE chief executive in a wheelchair. I did check this before speaking, and you've just talked about your desire to be a role model. But does that ever feel like pressure? Uh, and you know that that need to almost succeed and to help open up doors for others? Um, well, there, yeah, there is definitely some pressure because I, I, not that I worry about pressure, but um, I don't feel unhealthy with pressure, so it doesn't bother me. Um, no, it's, it's not so much pressure. It's more of a, a debt. I mean, look, I, this has happened. I'm glad it happened to me. And, I, and again, I know people will say, of course you would say that, wouldn't you? But I know a lot of people who couldn't deal with it. And I can deal with it. So if it's got to happen to someone, which it doesn't, of course, um, but if it has to happen to somebody, I prefer it's me than a lot of other people, including my daughters or somebody else. You know, I can mentally deal with it. Others can't. Um, I now, because I am in this situation, I owe it to myself, I owe it to others to use the platform I've got, not just ignore it and retire and do something else, but, uh, you know, to actually make sure that I benefit other people. So, you know, I genuinely feel that way. And, and you know, I, people say, is that just what you're saying because of what has happened? You know, I, I'm the longest serving board member at Great Ormond Street. Well, I, I, I am the longest serving great member of the Great Ormond Street board for a reason, you know, and that is because, you know, I, I genuinely want to give back and, and I always have been like that. I don't know why. And, and um, you know, maybe I can just fine tune that a bit towards you know my new situation and uh, and speak out for people with spinal injuries. But I, lots of others are doing it as well. So you know, I'd love to support them and help them and and, and so on if I can. In my way, um, we'll see. So yes, it, I think it's a responsibility rather than a pressure. If, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still trying to get it straight in my own mind, and uh, you know, clearly at the moment my priority is. Being a parent, my priority is is running the company that I'm running. But uh, more and more, I want to get involved in that side of things. Mm -hmm. And you, you talked about being in uh, intensive care and having to deal with some work things. You, you kind of dropped it in there quite lightly, almost. So, w what about your return to work, and how? how has it been on your terms? Has it been on you know, the company's terms? How have you managed that? 
Sure. I mean, uh, again, this probably all sounds very perfect, but I did get a lot of text messages and WhatsApp messages and emails and everything else from work colleagues. And, uh, and they would all come, they all were sort of along the same theme, which is get better soon, Steve. Um, and soon we'll be running again in Centennial Park or Central Park or on the Great Wall of China, or we'll be doing this, we'll be doing that. And I thought, no, I mean, we've told the market that I've had a serious skiing accident. We haven't told the market that I'm a paraplegic. And um, so I chose to go to a small private hospital, which fortunately my insurance company supported, but it meant that I could go to a small specialist private hospital and I got a minimum of four hours physio a day. And it was intense. And as long as I could balance my work around that, and my priority was obviously, you know, getting fit again uh, and learning how to deal with my disability. And then the rest I could dedicate to my family first and friends and then obviously work. So what I did in that week one was um, I managed to persuade the carer to uh, very early in the morning uh, to put a decent shirt on me so I looked semi-respectable and prop me up in the bed. I wasn't really getting out of bed at this point. I was still in too much pain. And um, I basically sent a video message to all my staff. We have a, an internal social media called Yammer, which is a Microsoft product, fairly standard product. And um, I posted it on Yammer to all the staff saying, look, you know, I think I owe it to you to give you a, a, a little bit of background as to what's happened, to explain my situation, explain that I won't be running in Centennial Park or Central Park because I've, uh, I'm now a paraplegic. I've, I've broken my back at T10, T11, which is those people that don't know is just below the belly button um but it's a complete fracture which means i know all this terminology now basically means i i did a proper job on my uh, spinal cord and went straight through it sadly i can't walk and won't i can stand and i can do other things but i have to learn everything that revolves around being in a chair um and revolves around and i'm not going to be graphic i'm too polite but revolves around everything below my waist, not working the same. So the easy bit is a wheelchair once the pain subsides a bit. The more difficult bit is actually making sure you get control of your bladder, your bowels and everything else, which every single disabled person in a wheelchair has to go through. So um, yeah, that was the three or four months in hospital. Um, Posting that video, I think was the right thing to do, but it did get me about 8,000 replies, uh, which I, of course, then dutifully replied to every single one. Um, I got sent food parcels, beer parcels, thankfully, uh, all sorts, and um, which was amazing and obviously uplifting and, and drove me on. And from there, really, I stayed connected to the company. We started, as soon as I was able to, not interrupt my physio, um, I was able to do board meetings, for example. I did a three-day exec board meeting by spending time in the hotel nearby. Um, I met most people from work, all the senior leaders that had a reason to fly to the UK, flew to the UK and came out and saw me and had supper with me or whatever. But, you know, bit by bit, I got more and more engaged with work. You know, by July, I was doing the trading update from the boardroom of the hospital, which was different. And I could get more and more engaged and then be back 
visually and actually in the offices as soon as I was out of hospital, which was the beginning of July. So the accident was on March the 10th. And um, four months later, I was free. Uh, of course, being free again um, meant I had to think about where I was going to live. So there's been a big part of you learning how to live with disability and getting your head around what, what the changes were. Um, some that you might have anticipated, others that you wouldn't have anticipated. What about those that you're working with uh, internally? Did did they have a learning process as well? I think um, a lot of pan, a lot of people have found it pretty difficult. Um, it, it's it's quite shocking news, particularly if you're good friends with somebody. A lot of my colleagues um, have worked for me for twenty five, even thirty five years, and and um, well, nearly thirty five years, and. Uh, you know, one in particular, actually, who's the longest serving guy at Page, a very senior guy, his daughter had a skiing accident. And uh, she's also, she's actually tetraplegic. And, um, you know, so, I mean, it's rare in life you'll know somebody, just one person who's in a wheelchair. Uh, when you know two that are close to you, that's quite a shock. So, you know, he's one of his best mates, hopefully, and, and uh, his daughter. And, and uh, you know, so of course it has an impact on those people who are close to you. They, they, they know me, they, they know what I get up to normally, and they realize the impact it's going to have on my life. And um, it, it rocks quite a few people. And, and you know, they, a lot of people needed to see me. My daughters needed to see a lot more of me than they had. You know, they're, they're, well, the eldest was uh, 27 at the time, you know, um, and the, the next one down was 24, and the next one down 21. Um, you know, they wanted the reassurance of seeing me, seeing me smile, seeing me getting on with life, seeing me getting into a wheelchair and getting mobile, you know. And and so, yeah, you, there was a lot of reassuring to do, I think. And, um, you know, I was talking to somebody in the business the other day, for example, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure he was overstating it, but he was saying that he was dealing with um, cancer last year. And it really helped him share my experiences and the challenges I was having with the challenges he was having. And, and he said, you have no idea how much that was inspiring and motivating and, and so on. Um, I, that wasn't my intention particularly, but again, it comes back to being a role model, I suppose. Um, and, you know, we just try, don't we? Um, so that, that's, that, that was important. There is, sadly, um, you know, maybe comes on to another important point. There's nobody else in a wheelchair at Page. Um, and that begs a lot of questions. So, um, you know, as to why. So, you know, that's something that uh, is a question I want answered and, um, and I want to understand. And it's not because we're at fault particularly. It's, it's society and all sorts of other things. But um, so, you know, it, it, it's something that needs to be looked at. And, you know, maybe I can play part in that as well. But... Um, so, yeah, uh, certainly an interesting period. Mm. That kind of leads me on to the theme, I suppose, of inclusion and diversity. H has your perception of inclusion changed as a result of going from being physically able-bodied to, to losing the use of your legs? Um, look, it would be madness to say that the answer to that's no. Of course it has. Um, it's certainly focused my mind even more. I think as well it's probably given me 
a bit more empathy, not with everyone, because when you talk about diversity and inclusive uh, inclusion, you know, you're talking about everything from sexual orientation to gender to, uh, you know, general ability, including mental health, you know, to race, you know, and of course, I can't now say that just because I'm in a wheelchair, I can totally empathize with being black or with, you know, with being gay or, or something like that. So, uh, of course not. But, um, you know, I'm a minority now, clearly. Um, I certainly get it that there are a lot of people who are not obviously disabled, including mental health. And I certainly, and, and there's, there's a horrible story I heard, and, and you know, I'll say it anyway, and maybe it's how some people even, some others even feel, but I had a conversation with one person, and I'm not, I won't say uh, anything more about that person, but he was an older person, let's just say, older than me, and I'm very old. Um, and he he said to me, well, what are you going to do when you, when you get out of hospital? And I said, well, try and get back to some sort of normal, you know, normal life and go back to work and so on. He said, well, you can't go back to work. And I said, why is that? And he said, you're in a wheelchair. And I said, well, I know I'm in a wheelchair. That's blindingly obvious. I said, you know, um, he said, well, people won't take you seriously. They won't notice you. And I said, well, anyone who doesn't notice me is one deaf and blind. But two, um, you know, nothing's changed. My legs don't work. I didn't think with my legs. I thought with my head. I speak with my mouth. You know, I'm still as functional as a leader as I ever was. And arguably, some people would say that I've proved I can overcome some of the biggest challenges ever. And, and maybe that's something that leadership, you know, isn't a bad thing. You know, it gives perhaps people confidence that I can overcome challenges like COVID or whatever that, that the world throws at us. And they're going to keep throwing challenges at us. So, but that, that, that thought echoed in my mind a lot, not because it gave me any doubts, absolutely not. But I realized there are people who think that. Sadly, actually, it will be the older generation. The younger generation think more like I just said, which is absolutely not. They totally empathize. It doesn't really matter that I, whether it's disability or whether I was gay or whatever. They go, great. He's, he's a bit more empathetic. He sort of understands he's got his own challenges, whatever it is. And he, he wants to deal with those. And, and so, if anything, it made me comfortable coming back to work, even though that person really couldn't see it. Um, and hopefully I've proved them wrong. You know, I've been back to work for a long time now, and obviously I've spoken to all shareholders, clients, candidates, consultants, you know, and, and it's been fine. But, um, and I don't think I'm any different. In fact, I'd like to think I'm improved, but uh, um, there is a school of thought out there and, and maybe some leaders need to re-examine themselves and, um, and look at themselves and, and go, you know, what is my way of thinking? Because I know some people would feel uneasy talking to me because I'm in a wheelchair. And you just go, well, how ridiculous is that? I mean, you know, I'm just the same person. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a whole interesting area. And, um, you know, like I say, I wouldn't profess to completely understand it, but, uh, you know, I'm dealing with it in my way. And I have to ask, because you obviously are a recruiter, what, what, do, what responsibility do you think you have as page group to contribute to creating a workplace that is more inclusive and, and diverse? Uh, look, I mean, I don't, well, I think every leader has this responsibility. 
responsibility first of all i mean it's not just page group because we we can't go around with and it's not just the recruitment sector either it's you know because we can't go around telling clients or selling to clients why they should be more diverse we try to I mean, I remember the day when people used to tell me what sex of employee they wanted. You know, I don't want a woman, I don't want a man, or, or whatever. Sometimes for sort of understandable reasons, like, you know, we've got too many of one kind, we'd like better balance, we'd like more diversity. Uh, you know, that's that's okay, that could be a positive. But, you, you know, others that would say the, all the obvious things, you know, we don't want to recruit a woman, you know, um, because she might fall pregnant. I mean, oh, for God's sake, yes, they do. Um, but, but why is that a problem? You know, um, so yes, we have got a responsibility at Page, but we all have as leaders and, and to be more inclusive. Um, we were already doing it. You know, yes, this has focused my mind, what's happened to me recently, but we were always doing it. I took it upon myself when I became CEO 14 years ago or whatever. I rehired a lady that had chosen to leave at the time and she came back. Uh, to focus on diversity and inclusion because, you know, we needed to make sure somebody had the dedicated time as well and to understand the challenges. And we focus, first of all, on gender. And, you know, it's important because I'm rather than going to just talk the talk, I'll, I'll walk, walk the talk for a moment, if I may. Well, there, maybe there's an irony. Uh, um, but um, if I look at I mean, we, we have to recount statistics to, to prove how well we've done. And I think that's important. You know, it, it's incredible how, you know, if I just look back over the last seven years, which isn't a long time, we've gone from 26% of our directors being female to 45. You know, that's, that's, that's an incredible amount. If, if in terms of the number of directors we've got, 450 worldwide, you can do the maths. You know, it's it's 80 or so. And, and, you know, if you've got 80 directors who you've trained, because we're organic, it means you, we've trained them from the most junior. They become consultants, managers, directors, some of them even more than that, managing directors. And you're then losing them because they wanted to do something like have a family, which to me sounds pretty natural. Um, and you're losing them all together. That is madness. And the commercial benefit of changing that and making that improvement that we've made is just enormous. And it's, it's just hitting the bottom line in a beautiful way. So why wouldn't you do that? But people and companies still choose not to. And so we have to be quite powerful in our arguments and our pitches to try to improve that. But it's not just down to page. It's down to all of us as leaders to grasp that subject and do something about it. I want anybody and everybody to feel totally comfortable at work such that they can be themselves, not pretend to be something else, not to pretend they haven't got a mental issue that they have got and they're having to hide it because many of my employees have worked for me for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Imagine hiding something like your sexuality for 20 years. The final theme I was interested to talk to you about was COVID. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're still adapting, trying to find ways to thrive in in these weird circumstances. So you've obviously had quite a bit of practice at remote leadership since March last year. So how how do you feel that people leadership has been affected by the lack of face-to-face contact, firstly? 
we're face to face now. I mean, you know, we're not face to face like I'd like it to be, but it, you know, it's 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 a pretty close second, isn't it? So you know, I can see you, um, and that's good. I can see you know how you're reacting to my questions. You haven't yawned. Um, so you know, at the end of the day, that is better than perhaps the technology that was available 10, 15 years ago. Um, but remote leadership is is clearly challenging, and um, but it's actually even more important, and that's. That's the thing, isn't it? It's more challenging on the one hand, but it's more critical that we are showing leadership at a time like this, because particularly, you know, back in April, the world was a very, very, very uncertain place. You know, we had certain clarity a little bit from the fact that in Page's case, we are the market leader in China, in mainland China. So we have offices in, you know, Shanghai and Beijing, the obvious places, but also in Suzhou and Chengdu and um, Shenzhen and Guangzhou and uh, Taipei. So we learned quite a bit from that, which was prior to April, obviously. But then as offices started to close in Italy and Spain, where we're also market leader, um, you know, we were having to learn and engage with clients and candidates and our own people, most importantly, in a very different way. We fortunately had the technology available at our fingertips straight away. So we, we have got very good technology at Page. We uh, have Microsoft Teams, which for us worked very, very well. It was globally rolled out. We were also able to get all 7,000, 7,500 people working from home in a, in a light switch almost, which was great. Um, so we, we didn't really miss a beat. So that was really helpful. But you're right, there's a lot of people who find their jobs quite tough and they need leadership and guidance and reassurance. You know, am I going to keep my job is the first question that a lot of people ask. Have I got an income? What's going to happen to me, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so we, we were very clear. I said before, I, I like sending videos. And as you can see, it's not because I'm photogenic, but um, I just feel it's more personal. So I was doing a lot of video messages to the staff about what decisions I, we were making um, or I was making in some cases what we were going to do for when and for how long and so on. I believe in leading from the front. So I voluntarily asked all 450 directors by video to take a salary cut in uh, Q2, uh, in Q2, second quarter. And uh, we did 20%, which saves a reasonable amount of money. We engaged with government schemes in, in Europe and the UK, uh, one or two other places. Um, we asked people to work four days a week and be paid for four days a week in order to basically support as many people as we could. Because at that point in April, the world was totally uncertain. We had no idea whether we would even transact any business almost in that period. But obviously we've learned through April, May and June. And I wouldn't suggest that we've got complete certainty now. In fact, we probably have. The complete certainty we've got now is that it's going to be uncertain um, for a long time. And that's the case. I mean, back in April, we probably thought, look, there'll be, a, there'll be a, a, a virus and then we'll all recover and we'll all be okay again. It will go away and we'll go on holiday. Well, clearly that's proved completely wrong. And it's going to be around for quite some time. And, you know, we're, we're opening most of our offices now and, um, you know, occasionally we're closing them. So, you know, we're, we're learning about this. and, and but, but we are constantly therefore from that experience being able to make better and better decisions I had. So we we in total managed to reduce our cost by 20%, just over 20% from March to April. 
whilst keeping the entire platform of business, almost entire platform of business intact. So all the offices are open, all the countries are open. We carried on doing business. If people were on furlough, for example, in the UK, then clearly they weren't allowed to work. And, and equally, the proportion that the government supported them in, in Europe is the same. You mustn't work if it's 30%, you mustn't work 30% of the time. And you have to stick rigidly to that. We actually quite quickly in Europe took people back off furlough and took them back into the business because we were getting busier as, as offices started to open and recover. And they opened in Europe far quicker than they have here in the UK. And our results started to improve. So we got through the first half with that quarter where business was being entirely transacted by video. So I mean, we've learned a lot here. How much, how many people prepared to offer jobs on the sake of video interviews didn't know before occasionally it happened when you were placing somebody from abroad you know from one country to another maybe but even then they'd often fly somebody over for a final interview not a pro not a possibility anymore so the answer is you can transact quite a lot of business and, and those smart clients that thought they'd use a downturn a slowdown a crisis to their advantage they were smart enough to make sure they hired some really good talent during that period, and they did. And some pretty senior talent as well. Um, and in fact, we did as well. And we found that because of the way we were managing our own people with total clarity, so they knew how they stood, they, they knew the sort of decisions we were making, it's got out into the industry, and we've actually recruited a lot of people who I know firsthand, because I've spoken to myself, we wouldn't have hired before this. So they were prepared to talk to us on the basis of how we've behaved during this coronavirus and how we've led the business versus some of our competitors, which is great. And some, quite a few of our clients have done the same. Why not? So as we got clarity through Q2, um, I basically, again, a more easy video this time, told everyone they would go back to 100% pay on the 1st of July, five days a week. And for those that were still on furlough, we top them up anyway and we would give them dates and we gave them all dates by the 1st of July as to when they'd be returned. So we, we were very clear on what we were doing, that we were not going to dismantle any of our business, we weren't going to sell it, close it, whatever, which of course in the world is no bad moments people think. Um, you know, if you take an example, Latin America is still at the epicenter of this virus, you know, it's tough and we don't really have any competition to speak of in, in, in Latin America. So I wanted to give total clarity to them as well. And, you know, they don't have social security if they lose their job. I mean, necessarily. So, you know, it's really, really important. They know how they, uh, you know, fare through this. I gave them total clarity that they've got full pay five days a week, even while it's quiet and they can depend on that. So I believe that leading through a, a remote lead through a period like that with a lot of video we, on Microsoft, I don't know if you use it, they, they, but you can do live events. So you can do, I, I've done live events with all 7,000, 7,000 staff. They can ask you questions, which they can type in. You can see somebody can answer them. So you can talk while they're asking, you know, asking you the questions, um, which we've done, you know, all, all sorts of different things from frankly that perhaps more sophisticated, sensible end to beer o'clock, breakfast clubs, running clubs, whatever. 
to make sure people stayed and felt very engaged, even though they were working from their study or their bedroom or their kitchen table or their, you know, we, we, we even had competitions of photographs of what is your home office like? And, and we, you know, we've had sort of one person working on a laptop on an ironing board. I think, I think that was probably more of a joke than, than, than serious, but, you know, I mean, all sorts of ways, making sure people were engaged and also trying to check in on them if we felt and we were, again did a lot of training with our managers checking in on them about their mental health and how they were coping mentally as well as physically with the challenge of working at home because it's a very lonely place especially if you're on your own obviously obviously and especially if you can't get outside and see the sun and all of those things so you know I think we've handled it well. We will all be judged as leaders in a few months' time, um, you know, or maybe a few years' time. And we will be critically judged because one thing's for sure that young professional people are very critical. They do evaluate all of the time. And also, there's nothing better, as I've also experienced, than a lockdown for you to contemplate and consider things and reflect. Do I like the person I live with? Happily, I can say that I got engaged during lockdown. Um, Do I like the person I live with? Do I like the house I'm in? You know, do I like the part of London I'm in? Do I want to move? Or do I like my job? Do I like my boss? Do I like the money I'm on? Do I like the sector I'm in? And we're getting reactions from people now who are going, no, I don't. I've been reflecting for the last three months, four months. I don't like the way I was managed. I was frustrated by the fact they didn't keep me informed of what was going on. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you my CV. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, is it? But sadly, a lot of people didn't quite think that way. And, and, and so, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing some of that reaction. Thank you. And many congratulations on your engagement. <laughs> well, I think I put it through a lot because I managed to break the titanium rods in my back during lockdown. And uh, I was always told, because I did a degree in metallurgy and material science, that titanium is almost indestructible and unbreakable. I've proved them otherwise. And um, so all the metal work that they put in my back in Switzerland, but they're very good at making watches, so I figured they'd be good at putting metal into my back, um, broke. And uh, I discovered this after three months of excruciating pain, uh, but getting into hospital was quite difficult. And eventually I had to go back in for two weeks of operation. So uh, I've certainly tested my girlfriend who's been around for the last five or six years. And uh, yeah, she accepted. But but you're on the mend now. You're, you're recovering well from, from that operation. Yeah, I'm, I'm up and about, but I'm still in quite a lot of pain. But I'm off painkillers. I don't, I don't, well, apart from red wine, but um, I don't really like painkillers. They're not, they're not good for you. And um so I'm in a bit of pain, thank you for asking, but uh, it's definitely getting easier to deal with. And uh, I'm an up and about all day, so as you can say, so uh, it's fine, it's fine. Steve, there's one last question that I'd like to finish on, sure. if I may. One piece of advice that you would give to leaders through this crisis? Well, flippantly lead. Um, <laughs> rather than sit back and hope, um, make clear decisions or communicate. That, that's obvious, but also, I mean, I've been coming out of that, out of this, we, how we reacted during the virus and how we react coming out of it is going to be critical. 
we, we, you know, many companies have to recover. Uh, of course, some have thrived clearly during this period, as we know, um, but but some haven't, and a lot haven't. And we've got to how we recover is going to gain us market share, is going to gain us popularity with our shareholders, all sorts. Doesn't matter who owns us. And uh, so I think you know, be clear on how you lead. Make sure that people is at the heart of all the decisions you make. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether you're a people business, obviously, like us in recruitment, or whether you're something else, but you will be better for the quality of the people you've got. And diversity plays a big part in that. So think smart, lead, because not everyone leads well, uh, and communicate, um, because all this remote working um, is pretty challenging. But I have to say, Maybe for disability, it'll open a few more doors because it, we've just proved that we can work from home and be very effective. So if it's a lift you haven't got or a disabled loo you haven't got, that still shouldn't be a barrier to being more diverse towards disability. Steve Bingham, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with host Gemma Soul and guest speaker Steve Engham, Chief Executive of Page Group. There's no doubt that Steve's recovery has been extremely challenging and is far from over, but I was struck by how quickly he's reframed his new situation into an opportunity. He's now able to role model in a totally different way to before and you could see how much that motivates him. Since taking over the Helmet Page Group in 2006, Steve has frequently featured in the Glassdoor top CEO rankings, and I'm sure that his accessibility as a leader and his constant communication contributes to this, something that I think we all feel is even more important now than it was 12 months ago. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available across major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.